Morning's scripture reading is the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Tired as he was from the generation, he sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, You have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. I know Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, Jesus' disciples had returned. They urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. They said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This morning we're beginning a two-week mini-series that we do at this point in the year, every year, about uh, inviting our friends to church, sharing our faith with people in our lives, especially those who aren't Christians, folks who don't normally come to church. And the reason we do it at this particular time every year is because it's heading into Easter. So what we have a tradition of at LMCC is every Easter we make this big push, this big emphasis for us to all invite basically everybody we know, everybody we can think of, uh, to to join us here for the Easter service. We've been doing this. This will be the fourth year we've done it now. Um, So it's a three-year tradition. So why Easter? Before we get into the passage this morning, why do we focus on Easter, on inviting everybody to Easter? Three reasons, a sociological reason, a psychological reason, and a theological reason. 
The sociological reason is because Easter is the time when most people are most likely to come. A lot of people are looking for a church to attend on Easter, even if they don't attend church the rest of the year. You've got a big special event, so it's kind of like non-arbitrary. You know, why any other week? But this week, there's a specific reason. Everybody's here at the same time. All the new people are coming at the same time, so nobody feels like out of place, like they're new and everybody else knows what's going on. So it's the time that, that people are most likely to say, yes, Easter Sunday. That's the sociological reason. The psychological reason has to do with us, which is that uh, you need a deadline. I need a deadline. So if I just said, uh, invite your friends to church sometime, uh, then you know we'd all say, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that this year. I'm going to get better about that this year. And then nothing would happen. Human beings need deadlines. This is why offers expire and so instead of just saying, let's do this at some point, we've said, let's focus on a specific date. Let's do it now. So what I would encourage you to do is, you know, as we talk about this over the next couple of weeks, and Easter is five weeks away, so you've got a little bit of time, I would just encourage you to not let yourself off the hook. If you're going to be in town on Easter, then Easter is what we're talking about. This is, that's your deadline. That's, that's the event. Um, don't say, oh, I'm going to do it at some other point. Now, don't let yourself off the hook the other way either. So if you're not going to be in town on Easter, don't say, well, I guess I don't have to do this. Uh, there's plenty of other good opportunities. The three weeks leading into Easter, uh, we're going to be doing a series that's great for folks who are newer to the church. Uh, the series following Easter is going to be great for first-timers as well. And then the same thing goes for don't let yourself off the hook if your friend that you invite can't come on Easter. Last year, I had tons of people that I invited who were out of town on Easter Sunday, and I just said, okay, well, how about one of these subsequent Sundays? And a lot of them came over the following month. So that's the sociological reason and the psychological reason. The third one is a theological reason, which is it's Easter. It's, it's Easter. It's the, it's the day we celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead, which is not just this thing for Christians, it's this event that changes history for everybody. Um, and there, I mean, I, I really cannot think of anything more depressing than a bunch of Christians on Easter Sunday, kind of in their little holy huddle, just singing their songs to each other about Jesus. You know what that is? That's, that's what the disciples did on Saturday. On Saturday after Jesus died, when Jesus is still in the grave, you got all the disciples together, just, just the little Christians together in the upper room, locked doors, because Jesus is dead. But on Sunday, when he comes back, ever since then, Christians have not been up in the upper room. They've been out in the streets. So this is just part of the, the, the faith. You know, If you want a religion where you don't have to kind of advertise it and share it and try to bring others in, um, I can suggest several good ones to you. There are plenty of them out there. Christianity isn't one of them. This is part of the Christian faith. And I don't want to, I mean, I I like you, I love you, I don't want to celebrate Easter with you. I want to celebrate Easter with your friends. I want to celebrate Easter with my friends. I want there to be a, a bunch of people here who don't even necessarily believe, but they're curious about this Jesus guy who twice a year, Christmas and Easter, the whole world is focused on. Um, so that's the, that's the theological reason. Anyway, Easter's the, the event five weeks away, and for two weeks, uh, this week and next, we're going to be talking about kind of the rationale, the why 
For some of you, you don't need this. Some of you, you know, you just spontaneously, naturally are always inviting others and always talking to others about your faith, which is great. But for most of you, you're like me, where you need to be reminded about why this is important and why your, your excuses are terrible um, and, and completely illegitimate. So uh, that's what we do this week and next week. And that's enough uh, prolegomena. Let's get into the passage this morning. This beautiful, beautiful passage from John 4. Uh, Structure-wise, this morning, a little different. Obviously, much longer intro than normal. And then also, we don't, we're not going to have any uh, headings, any sections. Uh, this passage lends itself very nicely to just kind of marching through it, which we don't get to do a lot on Sundays because most passages don't lend themselves to that. But this one, you can kind of just start at the top. We'll make some observations and, and, and comments as we go. So let's, you heard it read once, but we're going to read it through gradually. Again, if you look on the back of your program there, if you have a magnifying glass, um, you, can, you can follow along as we go. So now Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar. Tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So we'll stop there. What's going on so far? It's actually pretty straightforward. The passage does a nice job of explaining it itself, and so there's not a lot to add. It says Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So the point here is that Jesus is breaking these rules, these cultural norms, these societal taboos. And there's actually two of them. There's one the passage mentions, but there's one the passage doesn't mention. Not only did Jews not talk to Samaritans, so two different ethnic groups that were living in Palestine at that time, you know, you notice it said that he had to go through Samaria. So Israel, there's uh, Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, and Samaria right in between. The only way to get from the north to the south was you had to pass through Samaria. And if you were Jewish, you went as fast as you could and tried to kind of talk to nobody. So he had to go through Samaria. The first rule he breaks is that Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. But the second rule he breaks, which the passage doesn't mention, is that in that day, men didn't talk to women if you were strangers. You know, So uh, two major social norms that he's just completely disregarding. Why? Because he has something important that he wants to talk to this woman about. He wants to talk to her about God. He wants to talk to her about himself. He wants to talk to her about spirituality and, and meeting these, these deep spiritual needs. And the takeaway for us with regard to, to this subject of inviting others to church and talking to others about our faith is that it, societal norms don't really matter, and they're not an excuse. And you can't, so, you know, it's not like you can let yourself off the hook because, oh, well, we don't do that, or people don't do that in New York. We don't talk about that sort of thing. Well, who cares? You know, God certainly doesn't care. And so whatever it is, you know, whatever you feel like the societal norm is, like, you know, well, it, 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 it may be specific to your specific uh, context, you know, so in my work, you know, my firm is just very anti-religion, or, you know, people feel like uh, New York is kind of anti- 
Christian. And then there's this societal rule that we don't, you don't talk about religion. You, know, you don't ask people about their religious faith. So let's just grant that that's the case. Let's grant that in New York City, there's this societal rule that you, know, you don't ask people about their, their faith. It's just kind of this private thing. Okay, so that's the rule. What happens if you break that rule? Nothing. It's, just, it's completely unenforceable. And that's what you see here in this passage. There's, this, there's these rules. Men don't talk to women. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. So here's a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. Gasp. And, you know, he starts talking to her. What happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. You break the rule and nothing happens. This is what I've seen happen time and time again over the last few years uh, since I've been doing that. I've been in New York nine years. For six of those years... I didn't do what I'm telling you to do. I didn't talk to people outside the church about my faith. And for the last three years, I've been doing this. Now, next week, I'm going to tell you about more about how this has changed my life personally to do this. But for now, the point is just that, you know, I thought there was this rule that you weren't allowed to, to talk about it. You weren't allowed to ask people about it. And then I just said, what would happen if I just disregarded the rule, just completely ignored it? So I've asked hundreds of people over the last three years this just very simple question. What's your religious background? Tell me about your religious background. And nothing, in any context, whatever context, you know, all these places you're not supposed to talk about, nothing happens. All that happens is they, they tell me. And nobody's ever even been offended. They're just happy to talk about something besides the news or sports or, you know, something real. So, fine, there's a rule. There's a rule in your circle of friends. There's a rule in the city. If you break the rule, nothing happens. And God expects you to. He expects you to completely disregard the societal norms and be willing to commit whatever this social faux pas is to talk about this thing that's so important. So I'm tired of hearing people say, well, it's just very hard to be a Christian in New York. It's very hard to talk about your faith in New York. Now, you know where it's hard to be a Christian Pakistan, North Korea, Syria. It's flat out not hard to be a Christian in New York. It just isn't. It's not hard to talk about your faith in New York. I used to give myself that excuse, and what I found over the last three years is it's just not true. So let's continue. That's the first part of the passage. Continuing from there. So uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Neither water I give them will become in them a spring of water, lung up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. So what they're talking about water. First, they're talking about the well. You know, he asked for a drink because he doesn't have a, a bucket to draw water with. And uh, so the first, they're talking about physical water. And then he introduces this weird metaphor kind of out of nowhere. He's like, you know, uh, I could give you living water which is kind of creepy at first. It's like he's like a drug dealer or something. You know, like, I don't, what is this, like, living water, you know, that, and she has no idea what he's talking about. You know, he says, if, if you have the living water, you never get thirsty again. So she still thinks he's talking about 
physical water, which is fair since that's what they had been talking about. She's like, well, that would be nice so I didn't have to keep coming back to the well. Uh, So yeah, sure, give me some of the living water. You know, she's ready to try it. Uh, But he's not talking about physical thirst. He's talking about spiritual thirst. He's talking about soul thirst. And the way you figure that out is by by the way the, the conversation proceeds from there. So she says, sure, fine, give me some of the, the living water. And he says, go and get your husband. Which, if, if her sounds like this total non sequitur, like he's changing the subject, like, whoa, so I can give you living water, great, give me some of the living water, go and get your husband. Where, where is he going with this? And then not only that, but when you keep reading, it, not only is it changing the subject in a non sequitur, but you keep reading and you figure out that it's this really rude and invasive non sequitur because he says go and get your husband and she says I don't have a husband and he says well it's, it's interesting how you phrase that I, I don't have a husband I guess technically that's true you, you don't have a husband right now because you've had five husbands and the man you're living with right now is not your husband so, you know, it, again, very personal, very sore subject that he's bringing up. She says, sure, give me some of this living water. And he says, well, let's talk about your sex life first. You know, what is the, where is he going with this? What, what, what is he doing? And what he's, what he's doing is trying to get her to understand what, what living water is. Remember, he's talking about soul thirst. He's talking about spiritual thirst. And she says, well, what's this living water? And he says, you know what living water is. It's what you've been looking for, what you've been trying to get in these serial relationships with men. It's what you've been looking for through sex, through love. It's quenching your spiritual thirst. This is everybody. I mean, it's not necessarily these serial relationships for everybody. But everybody has soul thirst, has spiritual thirst. Everybody's born with it. That's just part of being human. And we all have these different ways, these different addictions, uh, ways of trying to to quench that thirst. So hers is very open and and on the surface. You know, obviously she's she's looking for something that she hasn't found. Um, the, The other really... Super obvious one about you know trying to quench your soul thirst is is these physical pleasures you know substance abuse whether it's drugs or alcohol or whatever it is well why do people go to these things because they don't feel good and it's not that they don't feel good physically they just don't feel good about life they don't feel good in the depths of their soul and they want to feel better but it it doesn't have to be these illicit things it doesn't have to be illicit sex or messed up relationships or substance abuse. It can also be these legitimate things that we, that we elevate and try to get our soul thirst quenched through these, these very good things, but we, we put all of our focus on them, whether that be uh, you know, family, marriage, and, and kids, or whether that be uh, in New York, the drug of choice is obviously work and, and success and, and making money and achievement. And Here's the crazy thing about addicts, and we're all addicts. We're all addicts in one way or another. The crazy thing about addicts is 
you, this is Jesus' point when he says, I can give you water that you, you don't have to keep going back to the well. What does he mean by going back to the well? Well, so you, you have your drug of choice, whatever it is, this thing that you think is going to make you feel better. And it does make you feel better for a minute or two or an hour or a day or whatever it is, and then it wears off. And so, you know, you have to go back to the well. You have to go get more of the same thing. But as you all know, it works this It's not just this way with drugs. It works this way with any of these areas of your life. The next time to get the same high, you need more of it. You, ha- you, have, to give, you have to get more of the same substance. And then it wears off, and you have to do it again, and you keep doing it again and again and again and upping and upping the dosage more and more and more, and you're still thirsty. You still have that soul thirst. You still have that emptiness. And the, the addict, and again, it's all of us, never thinks, maybe the problem isn't that I need more of this same thing. Maybe the problem is that this thing isn't going to do it. You never have that thought. You always just keep going back to the well, trying to get more of the same thing. So here she is on her sixth long-term relationship. And Jesus is asking her, when are you going to figure out? What, what number is it going to be? Seven, eight, nine? What number relationship is it going to be where you figure out the answer isn't another man? The answer isn't, oh, it, it's... it's it's still relationships. It's still sex. It's still love. It's just not this guy. I just needed some other guy. When are you going to figure out that that's not it? And he would ask the same thing to, to people in New York, but put differently, which is, when are you going to figure out that the answer isn't another promotion? That the answer isn't another race? Because you got that promotion and it felt so good, but then it wore off. And so you think, well, I just need an, another promotion. I just need another race. You know, it felt so good. I, I know it's going to feel so good again if I can just get to that next level or get that different house, you know, different apartment or that different vacation home, whatever it is. And Jesus is saying, is asking, what are you going to figure out? That that's not it. That that's not going to quench your thirst on a soul level. That you're just going to have to keep going back to the well over and over again. It's inter- that's what's interesting about New York is that, it, that we think we are better in some ways. You know, like we, we leave the towns we come from and there, you know, we, we know we couldn't be satisfied by that life. You know, that, that's not enough for us. We need more. We need better than that. You know, so we come here and we think that this is somehow more and better um, but it's not. And so what's, what's, what I love about this town is this, this love-hate um, dichotomous relationship we have with the towns we came from or with the rest of the country. Where part of us, we feel superior, like, you know, well, that wasn't enough for us, this is. But then what's also interesting that you find here is you also find this, like, almost uh, fetish, this idealization of small-town life. Because there's also in New York this this thought of well maybe maybe I got it wrong and maybe I just need to escape the city and if I get somewhere quiet you know and and focus on family then I'd be happy. There's this trope in Hollywood movies this terrible lie um, and it's the worst kind of lie it's a feel good lie 
where, it, you know, and you see this in movie after movie after movie where, it, you know, as you've got this big city character, they left their, their small hometown and they move to the, the big city and they're all ambitious and they're successful and they make a lot of money and they have fancy clothes and they go out to fancy restaurants, but they're empty. They're, they're spiritually empty. And so the way the movie always goes is some tragedy, something brings them back to their hometown. For some reason, you know, they don't want to go. They're so annoyed that they have to go, but they end up back in their hometown and they have to stay for some reason, you know, a snowstorm or whatever it is. And there's always this like um, inexplicably, like ridiculously good looking person of the opposite sex who's been hanging around the town and hasn't been snatched up. Nobody noticed that they were there for some reason. And, you know, they, they get together and, and the, they have this epiphany of, I had it wrong. You know, success wasn't the answer. Money wasn't the answer. Family is the answer. Community is the answer. Love is the answer. And, you know, happily ever after. Well, the problem with that is it, it's a lie. But the reason it goes down so easy is because it's, it's follow, it's a, it starts with the truth and then a lie. If you want to get somebody to believe a lie, tell them something really true right beforehand. And the truth that the movie tells in the first half of the movie is that people that live in the big city that are really successful are empty. That's true. But guess how people in the small towns with the nice families feel? Empty. They feel empty too. If they didn't, why do, why do half the people, or half the people in these small rural towns addicted to meth? They're just as empty. See, success doesn't work. Money doesn't work. But love doesn't work either. Family doesn't work either. Neither of them work. And you think, well, maybe it's the other one, and it's not. Jesus is saying, it's me. It's me. The only way you're going to be fulfilled on a soul level, the only way your spiritual thirst is ever going to be quenched, is through this relationship with the God who made you. That's the only way it's going to work. What does that mean for us in terms of sharing our faith with other people? It is so easy to think, you know, you look at these people around you in your life, and it seems like they're happy. It seems like they're doing well. It seems like they're maybe happier than you are. And so you think it's presumptuous. Who am I to say, hey, do you want to come to church? Or who am I to talk to them about faith? They're doing fine. If they needed God, they would come asking for him. You know, they're doing fine. Well, the, the persona that people present in public is a lot different than what happens behind closed doors. And the things they say to you at work or at school drop-off or over drinks or wherever it is, that's a lot different than the thoughts that they have laying on the pillow at night. This is everybody. It's everybody is empty without God, no matter how much they have, no matter how successful they've been, no matter how much they've achieved. It just doesn't matter. And Jesus' boldness in sharing with this woman comes from the fact that he knows. You know, he, he sees her whole life. He sees how empty she is. You say, well, that's an unfair advantage. You know, that he, of course he's able to be bold and share with her because he knows that she's spiritually empty. But it's not, because we all know. We're, we're all human. We, like, we all have that inside track. We all know what it's like. And you just have to know that the people in your life that look like they have it all together don't. And they are looking for something. Whether they admit it or not, they're looking for something.
And it's this. Let's keep reading. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you. And he, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, Jesus' disciples had returned. They urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. They said to each other, Could someone have brought food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So it's interesting. There's kind of a twist here now. Now we've got a new metaphor. We're not talking about water anymore. We're talking about food. But same basic idea. Before we were talking about being thirsty, now we're talking about being hungry. And it's the same, the whole thing repeats itself now, but instead of it being with Jesus and the woman, it's now Jesus and the disciples, where uh, he's using a metaphor and they don't get it. So he says, I'm not hungry, I've already had food. And they say, you know, just like the woman was saying, well, sure, I'd like water, that I don't have to come back to the well. They're like, well, who, who brought you food? And he's saying, no, 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 you don't understand I'm saying I, I've, I'm satisfied on a soul level. Now, at first it sounds kind of super spiritual, like, um, you know, they say, do you want something to eat? He's like, no, I don't, I don't need any food. I just do the will of God, you know, like it's like he's being kind of like holier than thou. But that, that's not what it is, he, because he eats other places. He, you know, that's, that's not what, what he's saying. What he's saying is, this thing that just happened with, between me and this woman that I met, where we, within 10 minutes, started talking about the most important things in life, and she is considering believing in me. That conversation, that interaction, what he's saying is, that satisfies me. That, that satisfies me. It's food to me. It satisfies me, Jesus, on a soul level. Now, the other way you could put that is, you know, so it's his food. His food is to do the will of the one who sent him. His food is to share God's message with others. Well, the thing about food is you need it. You have to have it. And what's amazing to me about this passage is that Jesus is saying, I need this. To, to share with this woman in this way, to, to be involved in these types of conversations, these types of relationships... This is something that I need. I have to have this, which is so different from so many other religions, especially Buddhism, where the whole idea is to to need nothing. And here Jesus is. He's saying, I have to have this. So he prays all day. He's got the Bible memorized. He meditates on Scripture. He's got his community group of his 12 disciples. And he's saying, none of that is enough for me on a soul level. To be satisfied on a soul level I have to be sharing God's message with those who are outside of the fold. That's what satisfies me. Now, what that answers is this question that you could bring up after the last segment, the last part of the passage, which is, well, okay, if, if Jesus is, is uh, you know, the thing that everybody needs, if this relationship with God is what quenches our soul thirst, our spiritual thirst, if that's the case... Then why why do Christians feel empty too? 
why do Christians have addictions too? You know, why are there Christians that, if Jesus is the answer, why are there people within the church that have already found Jesus that still feel spiritually empty? And the answer is here in the second pass, part of the passage, that the passage answers that, which is that for the Christian, it, for it to be real within you, for it to be a well of, of living water springing up within you, you have to be sharing it. Jesus is saying, it's not real for me. It doesn't satisfy me unless I'm sharing it. And the exact same way that somebody without Christ is empty because they don't have this relationship with God, in the exact same way, there is this deep, abiding emptiness for the Christian who is not sharing Christ with other people. And I speak from, from personal experience on this. Uh, like I, So I alluded to this earlier. So for, uh, from 7th grade to 12th grade, for, for 6 years... I was all about this. You know, as a kid, I, I was all about sharing Christ with, with people who uh, weren't Christians. And my faith took off as a result. And then for, for 10 years or 12 years, I just, I, I said, you know what? I, I don't feel comfortable doing this anymore. I'm not going to do it. And I completely let myself off the hook. And what happened is my, my faith gradually started to, to dry up. So, you know, it's just like the, the woman, and there's a Christian version of this, too, you know, where you've got the same things that you keep going back to to try to, to get the high, and it doesn't work. I, I tried everything but this. I would, I would do any, because that was my attitude, I would do anything but this. I'll do anything but share Christ with, with others who aren't Christians. I'll do anything but invite people to church. So I'll pray more. I'll read the Bible more. I'll get more involved in Christian community. And you just keep trying to do more and more and more of these same things, and it's not enough. It's not going to work. The well dries up. The well of living water within you dries up if you don't share it with others. But if you do, then all of a sudden it's back. I went through a period during this this time this of disobedience where... Um, it had gotten so bad that I couldn't even sing in church. You know, I don't know if you've ever gone through a time like that, where you're standing there in church and everybody's singing, and you know this, this song is "God is so great" or whatever it is, and it says "God is so great," and I'm thinking, eh, you know, maybe I, I don't really feel that way. I just couldn't sing. I, I, I felt like if I di- was singing, it would have been inauthentic. I would have, it would have been fake. And so it had been like this for a long time, and. All of a sudden, one night, I remember we were singing, and the, the song was this song that the churches used to sing uh, a while back, where it says, With a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. For the life that's been reborn, his love endures forever. And when that line came, For the life that's been reborn, and I, th- I thought of somebody, it just popped into my mind, hadn't been thinking about it the rest of that night, but I thought of somebody who, for the first time in a long time, uh, was there at church, in that church service, because of me, and actually just had come to faith recently, because of, of I had been involved in that, you know, it was, I was part of it. And when I thought about that person, that other person, being there that night, and being there for that song, for the life that's been reborn, his love endures forever. All of a sudden, 
my eyes filled with tears, and it was easy to sing because I was thinking about them. I was thinking about what God had done in their life. And that's how God designed it. He made it like this on purpose. Why? Because he wants people brought into the fold. Jesus says, I'm like a shepherd. There's 99 people here, 99 sheep here. I got 99 out of 100, and I don't care about the 99. All I can think about is the one sheep that's not here. Because I'm like a father who, I've got two sons, one of them runs away. I don't care about the one I've still got. I just care about the one that's run away. God wants those people brought in. And so he sets it up so that the interests are aligned. You know, The thing that he wants is lined up with the thing you have to do just selfishly, just for your own faith. And if you don't do it, your own faith will dry up. Because he doesn't want you to be able to just sit back and enjoy him without thinking about other people. So he makes it so if you try to do that, it, it won't be able to. It just flat out won't work. And the, the well of living water will dry up in your own life. It's satisfying. It's satisfying on a soul level. So just in the same sense that this spiritual thirst is only quenched by Christ, this, this spiritual hunger that a lot of Christians still feel. The food is doing this, is sharing Christ with others. One more verse, and then we'll close. He says at the end, just briefly on this, uh, so it's my food, he says, do the will of him who sent me, finish his work. He says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes. And look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. In other words, the time is now. You know, this is coming full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning. The time is now. Don't don't say I'm gonna I'm gonna work on this, I'm gonna start thinking about this. Don't say, Oh, I would invite this person to church, but I just don't think they're ready yet, you know. I want I wanna wait till they get ready. It's still four months until the harvest. I'm gonna I'm gonna let this mature. Jesus says, No, look at the fields. The fields are ripe for harvest. The time is now. So it's very simple what you do. You know, it's like when we talked about giving. It's not complicated. It's just nobody wants to do it. But all you have to do is, you know, we, we said with giving, uh, we set a very high bar of, of uh, 10%, which is the bar that the, the Bible sets. What I'd say here is, I don't know if this is going to sound like a high bar for you or not, but it, I guess it is if you've, if you've never done this before is 10 people, 10 people. Invite 10 people to, to Easter this year. Uh, now, that's 10 individuals or families, so it's, it's like two parents and two kids. That doesn't count as four. That's, that's one. Ten, 10 individuals or families. Just go home, and over the next you know, couple of weeks, think who are the top 10 people in my life that are most likely to, to come to church? with me this Easter over the next couple, couple months. I can 95% guarantee you that if you do that, if you choose the 10 that, that feel most likely, you pray about it and you are even halfway intentional about how you put the invitation out there, it, it's almost guaranteed that one or two are going to come. And what's going to happen is that there's this, this very high chance of not only for them, but for you, having this, this spiritual hunger and thirst that you can't get quenched, can't get filled anywhere else, all of a sudden there's going to be fulfillment. Let's pray. 
God, uh, you changed our lives. You've quenched our thirst, and then we think that somehow that's enough and that it's supposed to stop with us. For those of us who, like I confessed, I, I was in this position for so long, for those of us who just have said, no, we're not going to do this. We'll do anything else but this. We'll do all the other stuff, just not this. I pray that uh, your spirit would come now and would pierce our hearts. I pray that you'd, you'd soften us. I pray that you'd cut through the, the lame excuses and, and the fear and that you'd give us a sense of how good this can be not only for those we share with, but also for what it can do in our own lives. I pray that you would fix our eyes on you, not on the social, societal norms or taboos, and that you'd give us the words to say that you'd bring the right people to mind. We know that you care about these people a lot more than we ever could. That you'd bring the right names to mind, the right, the right faces to mind and that you show us how to go about this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.